Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the, make, before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear this voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they, had, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never rest. Hebrews 3 verse 12 um, through to chapter 4 verse 1. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Hi everyone, it's great to be with you again tonight. Uh, it'd be great if you could keep Psalm uh, 95 open, so I'll just give you a second just to flick back to Psalm 95. You guys have been going through the Psalms this semester, we're up to Psalm 95. Well, uh, as an experiment this week, I actually googled the word worship. Uh, I want to show you the screenshot that came back on my computer, this is it. That's what I got when I googled the word worship. Lots of hands in the air, uh, lots of music, lots of praise. Uh, they're the images that Google thinks of when you type in worship. That's what the internet uh, gives me when I ask it about worship. Uh, I want to ask though, if your Bible had an inbuilt Google function, like if the front cover of your Bible was a screen and you type the word worship into the search bar and then you hit the little image button, what images would pop up, do you think, from the Bible itself? What does true worship in the Bible actually involve? What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to get out of it? Well, uh, you and I are going to spend the next short while googling Psalm 95 and hitting the image button. 
Psalm 95 is one of the great psalms on worship. So we're going to Google it and see what images pop up. And I reckon that's important to do because you kind of get that worship is an important part of your Christian experience, right? So it'll greatly affect our Christian experience if we understand what the Bible has to say about worship. So come with me now, just for a short time, and we're going to Google Psalm 95 together, and we're going to see what images come out of Psalm 95. I think the first image that we see in Psalm 95 is that true worship involves our emotion. Now look at verse 1 and 2. Verse 1, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him, that just means praise him, with music and song. Now that description of worship in verse 1 and 2, it is full of emotional language. Singing for joy, praising God with music and song, it's clearly describing how worship engages our emotions. Verse 1, did you notice, it even described it as shouting aloud to God. Shouting aloud, it's an emotional response of joy. It's what 90,000 football fans do when their team kicks the winning goal. Shouting aloud is what I will finally do when somebody finally invents a low-fat cheese that actually tastes good. (laughs) Praise the Lord, O my soul. See, shouting aloud, it's this kind of uncontrollable emotional response. And verse 1 and 2, it is full of that kind of emotional language. Uh, That's why there's all the references to singing in verse 1 and 2. Did you notice them? Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us extol him with music and song. Uh, Singing is an emotional way of expressing something. Expressing something. It's what you do when you're happy. And uh, you'll actually see this every weekend around now on our televisions. Because when a football team wins, what do they do? They gather around, they've got big smiles on their face, they put their arms around each other and they sing their team song. Because singing, it's one of the best ways of expressing emotion. Like, don't you think it would be weird if they got into a circle and instead of singing loudly, they just read out a joint statement about their club's mission and vision statement? That would be really weird because winning is joyful and singing is the best way to express joy. Uh, Verse 1 and 2, it is full of that kind of emotional language. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. And so the first image that pops out of our kind of Google search of Psalm 95 is that worship involves emotion and song. And it's actually not that far from that original Google search that I did. The first image that pops up out of Psalm 95 is emotion. Uh, But I think at this point, it's actually really tempting to just try to be emotional in our worship. And so our song leader might repeat the chorus six times with increasing and building sort of volume and enthusiasm to try and trigger an emotional response in the audience. I want to ask though, what actually triggered the emotional response in verse 1 and 2? Did you notice what it was? Because verse 3 and 5 tells us, The psalmist has this emotional response in verse 1 and 2 because, verse 3, for the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Uh, 
See, the thing which actually triggers the emotional response in verse 1 and 2 is the psalmist thinking about God's character in verse 3 and 5. The psalmist, in his mind, is, he's reflecting on, he's meditating on the wonderful character of God. That emotional response in verse 1 and 2 is actually triggered by what he's thinking about in his mind in verses 3 to 5. In verse 3 to 5, he's thinking about God. He's creating this inventory of God's characteristics. Item number 1 from verse 3, the Lord is great. Item number 2 from verse 3, he's the great king above all gods. The next item in his hands are the depths of the earth. The next item, the sea is his, for he made it. The psalmist is engaging his mind as he's thinking through the characteristics of God. And that's the thing. That's the thing that triggers his emotional response in verse 1 and 2. See, The second image of what true worship involves that we get from 95 is that true worship involves our mind. That's the second image that we get from our kind of Google search of Psalm 95. True worship involves our mind, which makes sense, right? Because nobody really walks down the street and then for absolutely no reason at all suddenly starts shouting aloud in joy and praising. No, emotion, in image one, is responsive. It's the joyful response of the heart to something that the mind has actually grasped. The true worship involves your mind. And you guys didn't need Psalm 95 to help you work that out, because if you were here last week, you would have seen it in action. Because if you were here last week, do you remember what happened at the end of the service? We sung our closing song, It Is Well With My Soul. And did you guys notice how much louder you sung that compared to the other songs in the service? You you guys, you absolutely belted uh, that song out. Uh, Constanza noticed it. Uh, she gave you one of these uh, at the end of the song. Jeff and I noticed it because it's what we talked about on Monday when we caught up. We both said to each other how loud you guys were in that final song. Now, who organised that? Come on, fess up. Who was the one that sent the text message around to all of you saying, hey guys, we're at 65 decibels for the first few songs. We'd like to be at 75. Nobody organised that. I know. Nobody organised it. Do you know why? Because it was organic. It wasn't organised, it was organic. You sung that song louder than all the others because you had an emotional response. Why? Because you just spent 25 minutes engaging your mind, thinking through Psalm 13 and the topic of suffering and how God is amazingly trustworthy even in suffering. And what you engaged with with your mind triggered an emotional response, just like it does in Psalm 95. Verse 1 to 2, worship involves our emotion. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. And that is triggered by what the psalmist's mind is reflecting on in verse 3 to 5. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. Uh, So we've had two images pop up so far on our brief Google search of Psalm 95. The first image is that we see true worship involves emotion in verse 1 and 2. And the second image that pops up is it involves our mind. What's the next image that you think pops up from Psalm 95? Uh, I think the next image is that true worship, it involves our will or our obedience. Have a look at verse 6. Come, let us bow down in worship. 
Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Now, bowing down, that's language of submission of will. Kneeling before God, that's language of submission and obedience. See, worship, it involves aligning our will to God's will in obedience to living the way that he wants. Worship actually involves our behaviour as obedient people. You might know how Paul puts that in Romans chapter 12. The way he puts it is like this. Brothers and sisters, live holy and pleasing lives to God. This is your true and proper worship. He doesn't say, brothers and sisters, sing, shout, clap your hands. This is your true and proper worship. That's part of it. But what he says is live holy and pleasing lives to God. This is your true and proper worship. See, our actions are actually part of our worship. Or the way that Psalm 95 verse 6 kind of puts it, live lives bowing the knee in submission, in obedient actions to God. Uh, The person who makes their sick neighbour a meal in obedience to God's call to love our neighbours, that's an act of worship. That's bowing the knee in obedience to God's will and command. The person who flees from sexual immorality in obedience to God, that is an act of worship. It's bowing the knee and submitting to God's will in action. The true worship, it's, it's much bigger than just raising our hands while we sing. It also includes what our hands do during the week in action and in obedience to God. The true worship, it involves our emotion, verse 1 and 2. It involves our mind, verse 3 to 5. And it involves our will or our obedience in verse 6. Uh, maybe a more um, uh, memorable way of putting that might be to say that true worship involves our heart, our head and our hands. And I think you can see straight away that what is on screen is actually a much richer and deeper image of worship than purely this, than just the singing and the praising. Uh, Now, true worship obviously involves uh, the singing, but it, it is so much more. It involves our heart in emotion, it involves our head and our mind in thinking, and it involves our hands in obedient action to God. And that, that's the kind of worship that comes out of Psalm 95, and that's the kind of worship that will actually totally change your Christian experience. So why don't we pause here for a moment and ask ourselves some questions about our own worship. If you attend a church service, let's say, and you have an emotional response in the song, you sing so loud, your voice is sore, you clap so loud that your palms sting and you leave on an emotional high and you say, that was such a good time, worshipping. But if you leave there and you go back to your life during the week that has areas of unrepentant sin, sexual immorality, self-centeredness, a lack of love for other people, Psalm 95 would say, I don't think you've actually been involved in true worship. Like, your experience of worship, it clearly involved the first image of Psalm 95. You had an emotional response, it affected your heart, and that is good. But it didn't involve the third image. It didn't involve your will or obedience, or your hands in obedient action. Well, think of it another way. Imagine you come on Sunday and you hear God's Word read and sung and it engages your mind the second image of worship, and you're actually changed, the third image of worship, but you never 
you never actually have an emotional response. I think Psalm 95, again, it wants to ask the question, is that actually true worship? Psalm 95, it's one of the great psalms on worship and it actually shows that true worship involves our emotion, our mind, our will, or more simply, it involves our heart, head and hands. And it made me ask myself the question this week, which one of those three areas is most lacking if I googled my own experience of Christianity? Which one is most lacking for me? Am I the guy whose worship engages my head and my hands but I never have an emotional experience to what God has done? Is that me? Or does my worship engage my emotions and my mind but it never changes my actions? Is that me? Uh, What about for you? Uh, Which of those three areas of worship do you think might be most lacking in your own experience of worship? If you googled your own life, which one of these three would either be missing or which one of these three would be a sort of pale colour compared to the others? See, I think in Psalm 95, we actually have to ask that question of ourselves. I think the psalm itself, it actually forces us forces us to ask that kind of self-reflective question about our own worship. Can you see why it does that? It's because verse 7 to 11 closes this psalm off with a warning about worship. The psalmist, he actually spends the rest of the psalm warning his generation to worship God with their heart, their heads and their hands. And he warns his generation by reminding them of the most infamous generation of God's people who refused to worship God truly, the wilderness generation from the Exodus. Do you remember that generation? They were the ones who were in slavery in Egypt, but God rescued them from slavery. He led them out of slavery using a person called Moses. And on the night before he did it, do you remember what happened? They killed the lamb They painted the blood on the doorposts. It was called the Passover lamb. And in the morning, God led them out of slavery to Egypt toward the place that he promised to give them, a place of rest and peace called Canaan. Do you remember what happened in the short journey? What happened just before they got into the land? Well, they sinned terribly against God at a place called Massa and Meribah. I mean, talk about failing to worship. At a place called Massa and Meribah, they openly denied and failed to trust God. And do you remember what God did? He refused to let them into the land and they died in the wilderness. And Psalm 95, it takes that story and in verse 7 to 11, it it recaps it. And it does that in order to warn the psalmist's own generation not to make the same mistake. Have a look at verse 7 in the psalm. Today, if only you would hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they'd seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, there are people whose hearts go astray and they've not known my ways, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest." At the psalmist, he's talking about that generation that was led out of slavery in Egypt. They were on the border, pretty much, of the promised land and they didn't get in because they turned from God. Their hearts were hardened, the psalmist says in verse 8. They had heart failure, that's the failure of image one of worship. 
They never knew God's ways in verse 10. That's head failure or mind failure. They failed the second image of worship. They tested God, says the psalmist in verse 9. That's will or obedience failure. That's failure of hands in action. They failed image 3 of worship. See, in the psalm, verse 7, all the way down to 11, it recounts the failure of that wilderness generation to worship God with their hearts, with their head, and with their hands. And the psalmist is using that as a warning to his own generation to not make the same mistake. He's saying to his own generation, don't be like that group of God's people. Don't be like them. Worship God truly. Worship God with your heart, head and hands. And church, we are in the same position as the wilderness generation. Do you realise that if you are a Christian, tonight you are in the middle of the biggest exodus of all time. You were once a slave a slave to sin, but our Passover lamb Jesus has been sacrificed. His blood wasn't spilt and painted on a wooden doorpost, his blood was spilt on a wooden cross and we are currently being led out of slavery to sin and into a place of God's rest in heaven. And we're not in that place of rest yet, we're still, we're still on the journey. We've not crossed the border into our place of rest quite yet. And that puts us in the same position, in some ways, as the wilderness generation. They were slaves to Egypt and they were led out uh, by Moses towards God's land of rest. We were slaves to sin. We've been led out by Jesus towards God's place of rest. We stand on the border of God's rest in a similar way to what they did. And so the warning, I think, of Psalm 95 is for us who are in the middle of our exodus to continue to worship God truly and to not fall away with him, from him, before we've crossed the border into heaven. In fact, isn't that what the second Bible reading was about from Hebrews? If I just give you 15 seconds, maybe you can just flick forward into Hebrews, please. Our second Bible reading, Hebrews chapter 3. Just pick it up from verse 15 where it says, uh, as he, as has just been said. So from verse 15, as has just been said, here's the quote of Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all that Moses led out of Egypt? Look down to verse 19. So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. See, we as Christians, we are in the middle of the biggest exodus of all time. We are currently being led out of slavery to sin and into God's place of rest in heaven. We're not there yet. We're kind of on the border. We cross that final border at the end of our life or when the Lord Jesus returns. And the book of Hebrews, it picks up Psalm 95 and warns the Christian church not to be like that wilderness generation who failed to worship God and to cross the border into his rest. Don't turn from God and stop worshipping before you cross the border. That is the message of that passage in Hebrews and in Psalm 95. 
don't you think that's a bit strange? Like a serious warning like that in a psalm on worship? It seems very strange to me. Like you expect a psalm on worship to be really positive, to be really uplifting, right? And the first half of the psalm is exactly that. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. The first half of the psalm is exactly what you'd expect for a psalm on worship. We're invited to come and worship this awesome God with our heart, our head and our hands. But then the second half suddenly turns. It turns into a solemn and serious warning. A warning to worship God that seems so serious, it seems like our entry into God's place of rest depends on it. Why? We aren't saved by our worship. We're saved by the gospel, right? We're saved by our belief that Jesus died for sin. So why does Psalm 95 and why does Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 warn us so strongly against failing to worship? Truly. I think it's because true worship, worship with your heart, head and hands, is actually evidence that you've believed and been saved. The person that believes that Jesus has died for their sin is the person that worships God, who's been so good to them, they just can't help but worship him. See, worship is actually evidence that you have believed and been saved. Or to maybe put that the other way around, you might want to say that a failure to worship, like the wilderness generation, is actually a sign of unbelief. Because the unbelieving heart will never worship something that it actually doesn't believe. Failure to worship with our head, heart or hands, it can be, doesn't always have to be, but it can be a, an evidence of a much deeper problem, a problem of unbelief. Let me just give you an illustration. Uh, a few years ago, a friend of mine went to a doctor um, with a lack of balance. He'd lost his sense of balance. Now, losing his sense of balance, it doesn't sound particularly uh, deadly or serious. It's not a life-threatening thing, but it actually turns out for my friend that his lack of balance was actually due to an underlying deadly disease, a disease that will one day probably cost him his life. See, a lack of balance, it doesn't seem uh, particularly deadly in and of itself, but for him, the lack of balance was a sign of a much deeper, bigger problem. In a similar way, a lack of worship for us as Christians, it's not deadly in and of itself, unless the lack of worship is evidence of a much deeper problem in our hearts, a deeper problem of unbelief, because an unbelieving heart is deadly for the Christian. That wilderness generation's lack of worship, did you notice in Hebrews, it was actually due to their unbelief. And it was the unbelief that caused them not to enter God's rest. It wasn't the lack of worship that caused them not to enter. It was the thing which the lack of worship was pointing towards. That's what Hebrews said, isn't it? Verse 16, Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry with for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter, look at this, because of their unbelief. And that is why, that's why Hebrews and why Psalm 95 warns us about our worship. Because if you look at those three areas on screen, head, heart and hands, a lack of worship in any of those areas, 
It doesn't have to, but it can be evidence of an unbelieving hard heart that's turning from God. Let me take an example. Let's look at the first image. If your worship lacks emotion, uh, that could be that you're just not an emotional person. Like if the person next to you is singing really loudly and they're waving their hands and you're just kind of standing there with your kind of hands in your pockets uh, singing, that could totally just be your personality. Maybe like me, you're not particularly an emotional person. That's totally okay. That doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It doesn't mean uh, that you don't believe uh, in the Lord Jesus. Uh, But if that lack of emotion is actually caused not by your personality, but because deep down in your heart you actually don't believe that Jesus died for your sin and that he rose again to rescue you from slavery, that's actually really serious. Because it's by belief that we're saved as Christian. Uh, Look at that second image with me. Uh, If you never worship God by engaging your mind or your head, uh, if you never study the Word of God and love digging deeply into it, uh, that could be that you lack some maturity or it could just be that you're not actually sure how to read the Bible for yourself. Uh, That doesn't mean that you're not a Christian, certainly doesn't mean that you're not saved, but if the reason you never engage your mind in that way is actually because you just don't believe the Bible is God's Word and that He's spoken, that's actually serious because it's by belief that we're saved. Well, look at that third and final image. If the thing that your worship of God lacks is your hands in action, in obedience, that could just be that you're addicted to some kind of sin, you hate the sin, you struggle against it, you just can't get rid of it though. That could be that God hasn't yet given you victory over it. And there's you know, that every person in this room knows exactly what that is like. That does not mean you're not a Christian. It doesn't mean you're not saved. But if your lack of obedience is actually due because deep down in your heart, you actually just don't believe in God. You don't believe he cares about sin and you just don't believe he's ever going to judge. Uh, that's serious. Because that unbelief is cancerous. Because by belief we are saved. So can you see now why Psalm 95, it has this great first half where it talks about uh, worship and all its beauty. But then the second half, it turns to this really solemn warning about worship. It does that because a lack of worship, it can be a sign of unbelief. And unbelief is what caused Israel to fall in the wilderness. And it's what can cause you and I to fall as well. Israel, they were in the middle of the Exodus. They were freed from slavery in Egypt. They were being led into God's place of rest in Canaan. And their unbelief, it manifested in a lack of worship. And God looked upon their unbelief and said, they will never enter my rest. Well, you and I, if you are Christian, we are in the middle of the biggest Exodus of all time. It's amazing. We have been freed from slavery to sin. That is amazing by the Lamb of Jesus being sacrificed. That is amazing. And we're currently journeying towards God's place of rest in heaven. And so Psalm 95, it gives us as Christians two things to do, as people who are in the middle of their own exodus. First thing it gives us to do comes from the first half of Psalm 95. It encourages us to worship God truly with our emotions, with our mind, with our obedience, or with our heart, head and hands. 
worship the God who has rescued us from slavery to sin and is currently leading us towards his place of rest. For that God, he is so worthy of worship. And the second thing that Psalm 95 pushes us to do, I think, as Christians, is heed the warning. I actually think it urges us as Christians to look at our lives, to look at our worship and see where we're failing to worship God and ask ourselves the question, is this failure of worship caused by a sinful, unbelieving heart that is starting to turn from God? There's two things for us from Psalm 95. Firstly, encouragement to worship the God who has been so gracious to us and a warning to actually really do it wholeheartedly with our head, our heart and our hands. Uh, And we're going to close now by doing those two things together as a group. Uh, We're going to respond to the warning in Psalm 95 and we're going to do that by praying in the words of Psalm 95. I'm going to lead us to pray that God would protect us uh, from unbelieving hearts that turn from him. Uh, And then we're going to do the first thing that Psalm 95 encourages us to do. That is, we're going to praise and we're going to worship him because he is very worthy of our praise. So will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you have said, today if only you would hear your voice. Do not harden our hearts as people have done before us. Well, today, Father, we've heard your voice speak in Psalm 95. So, Father, do not let us harden our hearts as your people did in Meribah and Massa in the wilderness when they tested you. But, Lord, please keep us from turning from you while we journey out of slavery to sin and towards rest with you in heaven. Father, during this exodus, may we be people who worship you truly with our heart, our heads and our hands. Amen.